Blog Talk Radio. Eastern family and friends, welcome to Memories of a Great Airline, as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Kind of a long title, but it says what the show will be about. Stories about the people and friends of Eastern over the history of the airline. Your storytellers will read stories found in several Eastern publications, such as the Repartee Magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, The Wings of Man, The Wings of Many, the Silverliners Magazine for the Flight Attendants, News Wings, which started it all with Pitcairn Aviation, and many more. 
stories that tell the history of the many departments of an airline. Men and women performing their duties that made Eastern Airlines the great airline it was. Pilots of the early history of the airline that were asked to fly their open cockpit biplanes into the night skies, into good weather and bad weather, fog, rain, and snow, with the most crude instruments compared with today's high-tech cockpits. Roads, railroad tracks, and the early radio ranges filled with static were their only means of navigation. Landing at night with only the glow of flare pot pots put out earlier by ground personnel was a challenge that modern-day airmen cannot fathom with their full automatic landing systems. We owe much to these heroes of aviation progress. Maintenance performed by the early mechanics dealt with fabric airplanes, needed to be patched and engines with the complexity of the internal combustion engines, needing constant repairs day or night, broken down in pastures like fields of grass and weeds. No matter what the weather, the mechanics under the direction of Mr. Johnny Ray always came through to keep the airline in the air. Hostesses were hired once passenger airplanes came about, like the Curtis Condor and the Kingbirds. They were introduced to the traveling public. From the early hostesses, as they were originally called, to the stewardesses in the 50s and 60s, to our present flight attendants on the jumbo jets carrying several hundreds of passengers in a single airplane. These professionals are the first responders when an aircraft has an emergency and to protect their passengers that could even cost them their lives. From just showing up at the airfield to catch a flight to their destination to the marvels of the modern-day reservation system which Eastern Airlines pioneered in its early development that allows for even booking your flight and seat from the comfort of your own home today. You've got to sell seats to stay in business, in the words of our beloved president. There has to be an ass in every seat, the airline excelled in sales and marketing. These men and women gave the airline prestigious businesses, business such as the official airline of Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. The airline of so many firsts, it would be hard to list here, just to mention a few. Uh, the first Boeing 727 flown by Eastern, the first wide-bodied aircraft, L-1011, the first air shuttle, the first Boeing 757, and many, many more. And finally, the stars of the show, the Eastern aircraft, from the Pitcairn Mail Wing aircraft to the jumbo jets, like the Lockheed L-1011, the Airbus A300, the McDonnell Douglas DC-10, the Boeing 747 to the all-glass cockpit of the Boeing 757. I could go on with why this airline, Eastern Airlines, became a legend in its time. However, we think the radio broadcast that you'll be hearing will more than tell the story, so we invite you to sit back and enjoy the memories of a great airline as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. 
Harry Lindquist and Captain Neil Holland will be joined by others as we introduce episodes each week. We hope you will join us on these Monday evenings at 8 p.m. East Coast time by going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. That's Captain Eddie. C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. And now for our first story. This story comes to us from the wings of man. Captain Eddie Rickenbacker was known to be a man as tough as nails, but also he would respond if someone needed help. This is one such story about his response. The story is entitled Requiem by Jimmy Goodwin, who was a REPA contributor. The subtitle, Rickenbacker and Runyon. As the big airplane left Guardia Airport, the lives of two men came together for the last time. Each a tower in his own field, both had climbed from a lowly beginning to a position of wealth and power. Self-made men, that they were called, but there were great personal differences. Alfred Damon Runyon enlisted in the Spanish-American War by exaggerating his age. He later served as a war correspondent in World War I. He became a prolific writer, poet, playwright, and novelist, but was best known for his short stories which centered around Broadway its strange assortment of people, its gamblers, promoters. Using a unique style concocted of underworld argot in the present tense, his talent drew attention from both readers and producers. Sixteen of his stories were made into movies. The Broadway musical Guys and Dolls was based on his stories of the same name. Running was short and dapper, bespeckled in his later years. He was a shy, quiet introvert who masked his feelings under the pose of professional tough guy. Edward Vernon Rickenbacker, born on the wrong side of the tracks in Columbus, Ohio, left school early in his teens to help support the family. His hard climb led him to become an automobile mechanic, a racetrack driver, and chauffeur for Colonel William J. Billy Mitchell in World War I. Transferring to the Army Air Service, he learned to fly in France and became America's top ace with 26 victories to his credit. Captain Eddie Rickenbacker had returned to America as a hero. After failing as a builder of the Rickenbacker automobile, he joined General Motors, touring the country to promote its cars. GM later made him general manager of its airline subsidiary, Eastern. He then bought the company, built it into one of America's great airlines. Rickenbacker was tall and big-boned, with a commanding manner which made him stand out as a leader in any group. He was also tough and demanding, yet always ready to respond to a call for help. It was because of such a call that this special flight of an Eastern Airlines DC-3 Silverliner was climbing for altitude as it headed down the Hudson River on December 18, 1946. Captain John F. Gill, a veteran pilot, was in command. If anyone could said to be in command when Captain Rickenbacker was aboard, Captain Eddie Barber, whose red hair and jovial manner made him one of Eastern's best-like pilots, sat in the co-pilot seat. The cabin attendant gave a cheery good morning to Mr. and Mrs. Damon Runyon, Jr. as they entered the captain. 
To Captain Rickenbacker, who boarded last, there was a warm, good morning, Captain. And Rickenbacker responded as he always did with, How are things going, Joe? Captain Eddie was forever probing for information. That was probably the reason he was the most knowledgeable head of any airline. As the three people took their seats near the rear of the cabin, the attendant went about the business of making them comfortable. Wraps were stored in the rear of the cabin. Hats were placed in the overhead rack. He switched the reading light on and pulled out the ventilator over each passenger's seat. As he gave them each a small pillow, he said, If you need anything, just press the button, and motioned his hand toward it. Eastern's cabin attendants were thoroughly trained to look after the passenger's comfort, attentive but not overbearing. The captain cabin attendant was puzzled. There was an awkwardness about the box Damon Runyon Jr. held on his lap. Strange, thought the cabin attendant, that he had seen and handled hundreds of packages during the last week or so. It was the Christmas season. Salvation Army bells were ringing even as the passengers boarded the airplane, and almost every holiday passenger had one or more packages to be stowed away. Yet the cabin attendant hesitated to offer help with this box, which was wrapped in brown paper and tied with a heavy cord. Instead, he offered the passengers chiclets. Captain Rickerbacker sat across the aisle from his two guests. His presence caused the attendant more concerned because the boss was always conscious of cabin service. There simply was no way to say it. Can I put it in the seat in front of you? Would you be more comfortable if I put it on the floor? No, that wouldn't do. The roar of the engines evened out and became a funeral dirge as the silver liner headed for the Statue of Liberty. In the end, he decided that this was a case where doing nothing was the best choice, so he remained in the rear of the cabin. Before long, there was the sound of a buzzer, and the cabin attendant went up the aisle and into the pilot's compartment. Returning, he spoke quietly to Captain Reckenbacker, who got up, nodded to Damon Jr., and walked up front. The younger man followed him into the pilot's compartment and pulled the door closed. Somehow, the cabin attendant felt some gesture to Mrs. Runyon Jr. was in order, as she was now alone in his cabin. She accepted a cold drink, but required nothing else. In the pilot's compartment, Eddie Barber moved from the co-pilot seat, and Captain Rickenbacker awkwardly eased himself into the right seat. His ankle still bothered him, a carryover of the injuries he sustained in the 1941 crash of a DC-3 sleeper plane in Atlanta. Damon Jr. passed the box to Rickenbacker, who removed the wrappings and gingerly handled the heavy bronze urn. Being a practical man, he used the heavy cord from the box to secure the urn with one end tied around his neck, the other end tied to his right wrist, just in case. Captain Eddie next pulled back the sliding window on his right, a job made more difficult with his right fist fettered to the urn in the cramped quarters. Standing beside Eddie Barber in the crowded aisle behind the pilot seats, Damon Jr. was fascinated by the multitude of dials and knobs and levers and switches. Then his eyes caught the urn. Rickenbacker was holding and the wasted years flashed through his mind. Their differences on so many things, trivial now they seem, placed distance between them. There were many things that they had in common. One was alcohol. Like his, fa- like his father, he was a newspaper reporter and writer, though not as successful. By a wry twist of fate, their reconciliation came about through writing letters and short messages his father passed to him after surgeons had removed his power of speech. 
He had followed his father's footsteps, and too late they came to find the love that only a father and son can know. As the captain sat holding the urn in his lap, waiting for Johnny Gill to reach the agreed-upon location, his mind took him back to France, where he first met the American war correspondents in 1918. The next time he saw him was when he called upon the great newspaper reporter and writer for help in preparing himself for the patriotic speeches he was so ill-prepared to give, but was expected to make on the Liberty Bond tour. It was early in 1919. He had been brought back to America to tour the country, but his skill and courage in the air did not prepare him for the challenge on the speaker's platform. That he had had such a successful tour was in large part the result of help from the man who was no more. His reverie was broken by a touch on his shoulder and Eddie Barber's voice. Coming up, Captain. When the airplane steadied over Broadway, Captain Johnny Gill nodded to Rickenbacker to indicate they were approaching Times Square. The window was about level with his face, requiring him to twist around to the right. Carefully placing the neck of the urn out of the window while holding it with the two hands, a most awkward situation, he tilted the container to let the contents escape. There was a sudden cloud of dust as the lighter ashes were sucked into the cockpit, but the solemn task was over. Captain Rickenbacker quickly withdrew the urn after giving it a final upturn. He was coughing and wheezing and trying to get to his handkerchief, but his hand was firmly tied to the now-empty bronze urn. The others inhaled a share of the contents, but Rickenbacker, whose face was only inches from the window, received the full impact. It shouldn't have happened. The crew was thoroughly familiar with the idiosyncrasies of the ventilating system of the cockpit. By opening the sliding windows on each side, the intake of air could be regulated, but things in the pilot's compartment were anything but normal. Rickenbacker occupied the co-pilot seat, Johnny Gill was more or less watching Broadway, Eddie Barber and Damon Jr. were awkwardly standing behind the pilot seats. To have told the captain how to handle the window, or anything else for that matter, would have been like Peter telling Jesus how to heal the sick. The confusion was soon cleared up. Rickenbacker freed himself from the urn, which he passed back to Damon Jr. After Damon Runyon's last wish had been carried out, his ashes, or most of them, were floating down along the great white way that had been so much a part of his life. But there was a portion that would continue to fly the routes of Eastern as long as that ship kept in the air. Rickenbacker was still having a problem as he deplaned. His eyes were a bit red, and he was blowing his nose as Johnny Gill, noting the time, said, Gonna have lunch at the airport, Captain? Eddie Rickenbacker looked at him and snorted, Hell, we just had Damon running for lunch. Hey, funny face. Hi. Guess what? I'm going out of town tomorrow to the sales conference. Out of town? Can't they send somebody else? No, honey. It's my big idea about the conveyor. Well, can't you send them a letter? Uh-uh. Or a phone call? Smoke signals? No, honey. It's my idea about the conveyor, and I've got to be there to present it in person. It's a big opportunity. I know. I'm very happy. Got your tickets? Eastern Airlines. When will you be back? Same day, tomorrow night. Oh, you mean you'll be home tomorrow. Yeah, Eastern has a schedule where you go in the morning, come back in the evening. Oh, honey, they're just going to love your idea about the conveyor. I love you. <laughs> Eastern Airlines has same-day return schedules to many cities, including Chicago and Atlanta. Eastern will fly you to your business meeting in the morning, then bring you home for a goodnight kiss. Wherever you want to go, call Eastern and ask. Getting home is half the fun. 
Come fly with Eastern. Did you ever wonder how Miami Springs got to be such a big part of Eastern Airlines? Miami Springs, of course, is adjacent to the Miami Airport, so it seems logical. But did you know that uh, Glenn Curtis, a famous early aviation pioneer, was one of the founders of Miami Springs? And from the MiamiSprings.com website, it says in 1935, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, general manager of Eastern Airlines, moved Eastern's headquarters of operations, maintenance, communications, and purchasing divisions from New York and Atlanta to Miami. Realizing this meant that hundreds of Eastern employees would be moving to South Florida, Glen H. Curtis Properties offered special pricing and financing on homes and lots in Miami Springs for those Eastern employees. So we have an article here from the Wings of Man entitled Eastern Airlines at Miami Springs by Antolin Garcia Carbonell. Although they were, they were contemporaries and shared many interests, to date no evidence has been located that Glenn H. Curtis and Captain Eddie Rickenbacker met. Curtis, 12 years Rickenbacker's senior, began working on bicycles, then motorcycles, before becoming an aviator. Rickenbacker started with automobiles, became a race car driver, and learned to fly at age 27 in France during World War I. During the 1920s, Rickenbacker designed and sold cars when Curtis was primarily interested in real estate development. It was only in 1933, three years after Curtis's death, that Rickenbacker became involved with Eastern Airlines. This is the Everglades connection. It fell to H. Sayre Wheeler, the Curtis executive who married Glenn Curtis's widow, to begin the relationship between Eastern and the Curtis Mansion. In the mid-1930s, as a member of Miami's exclusive club, the Committee of 100's Everglades National Park Subcommittee, Wheeler was one of several members tasked with soliciting contributions for a $5,000 fund for lobbying efforts for the creation of the National Park. Wheeler approached Eastern Airlines, but the local representative told him that the company was not in a position to make a donation. In August 1935, under Rickenbacker's leadership, Eastern relocated its aircraft maintenance and regional operations offices to Miami's 36th Street Airport. Wheeler, then Vice President of Glen H. Curtis Properties, the real estate company that was marketing Miami Springs, ran advertisements welcoming Eastern's 200 employees with offers of homes for sale on very favorable terms. Over the next few years, not only did Eastern employees move into Miami Springs, but the airline, once it ran out of space at the airport, acquired property on the north side of Northwest 36th Street from Glen H. Curtis Properties. Wheeler's Everglades lobbying paid off in July 1936 when Eastern flew down a group of officials of the Isaac Walton League, sportsmen and newspaper city editors for an Everglades fishing trip sponsored by Baron Collier. The excursion familiarized fishing enthusiasts with the Everglades and enlisted them as backers of the National Park. A New York Times article allowed even a very busy businessman to get away for Everglades fishing trip and be back at work on Monday morning. So that's really how the uh, Everglades part of the uh, uh, 
area got started with, with this uh, donations. The next story told here is about the motor shop picnics down in uh, Miami Springs. In 1934, Eastern's aircraft maintenance mechanics began holding picnics around the 4th of July. These mail-only events featuring traditional sack and wheelbarrow races along with dice games and all the fried chicken, watermelon, and beer you could consume. The occasion became Captain Rickenbacker's favorite company event. After the motor shop, as the aircraft maintenance division was then known, moved to Miami, the picnics were held at Matheson Hammock, a beach park established by the Works Progress Administration. In February 1941, Rickenbacker barely survived the crash of an eastern flight on its final approach to Atlanta. He spent several months in Atlanta's Piedmont Hospital with a balance of that year undergoing physical therapy at his Connecticut home. When Rickenbacker was too weak to attend the motor shop picnic in July, Sarah Wheeler hosted the picnic on the grounds of the Curtis Mansion in Miami Springs. Rickenbacker placed a call to the mansion, which was then broadcast through loudspeakers to the mechanics. Picnics were held at the Curtis Mansion until Glenn Curtis, Jr. sold it to Art Bruns. Once he had recovered, Rickenbacker would always attend pictures in the Great Silver Fleet. Eastern's in-house magazine show that the all-male event became more business-like over the years. The one thing that never changed was the fried chicken and the watermelon menu. Ryan, look! There's a new kind of plane! That's Eastern's new Boeing 727 jet! Look how high the tail is! 34 feet! Look where they put the jets! In the tail assembly. That's one reason it's so quiet. The passengers are always riding ahead of the sound. Why does it fly to? I don't know. It flies north. You can hightail it on Eastern's new 727 jetliner to Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston. And a unique new dining service is worth riding home about. Choose from a selection of superb entrees like lobster Newburgh, filet mignon with Bordelais sauce. Prepared as you like it. Eastern 727 Jet, quiet as a library. The smartest way to leave town, come fly with Eastern. This story was found in the Wings of Many. Uh, it's written by Jill Cotton, and it's titled Strange Voices. Jill tells her story. This is my story. It's all true. It started in the spring of 1975 when flying a trip sequence from Miami, Atlanta, Los Angeles with a layover and returning the same way. It had been a couple of years since the L-1011 had crashed in the Everglades, but the stories were still circulating about the ghost on board. I had been flying this plane for months now and never experienced an encounter and wasn't planning on it now. The first leg of the trip was the 0700 departure out of Miami and was a pass rider's dream. My headache was making sure I had enough meals for everyone since I was working galley position. I got all my meals and I was a happy camper. I love working galley. We landed in Atlanta, and I immediately headed downstairs to make sure the caterer was putting everything in the right place. 
Now, mind you, I always stayed out of their way when they were on board with all the carts, plastic bins, liquor kits, and regular trade carriers to come on board. It was a big job that had to get done in a timely manner. By just watching them, I could tell if things were right or wrong. After takeoff, I went back to the galley and began to work by sending up the necessary carts for both first class and the coach section. Then I noticed I kept hearing voices every so often. I couldn't place them. By now, meals needed to get placed into the food carts, and I just kept working, but still hearing voices just ever so often. I finally called up to the flight attendants working in coach, asking if they were trying to get in touch with me. They're in the middle of the beverage service and didn't even respond back to my call. I finished up the carts and now I'm waiting for the first class sequel beverage carts to come downstairs. The first one comes down and I pull it out, get it in the lift and uh, get in the lift and go up to the passenger deck as quickly as I can before they can head back to the front and ask if they have been trying to reach me. No was all I got, and we're ready for our food carts now, they said. I head back down and send up the food carts. Still, I keep hearing voices, but just every once in a while. The service in both cabins is now in full swing, and there's no way I can bother anyone at this time to find out if they're trying to talk to me. Besides that, who else could it be, right? When I finally had an opportunity to leave the galley again, I head for the cockpit. I unlock the door with my key and go in. The guys are busy, so I ask the engineer if they had been trying to reach me in the galley. No, but if you're hearing voices, maybe one of the uh, handsets is connected to the galley, and that's what you're hearing. Good idea, I thought. I leave and check L1 and R1. There doesn't seem to be a problem there. I head back to the galley, still very much upset by my situation, without a solution at this time. Voices in the galley, not a good situation, and all the stories that are going around. Coach service is in full operation, and I I know they will need more food. Besides, that first-class dessert carts need to get set up. Stripping the sequel carts and then setting them up for their next use is quite intensive with all the china plates, silver service, and dessert items. I have the large compartment bins that hold the tray carriers open, redoing the linens, getting coffee cups and saucers out of the plastic bins, and setting up each shelf from top to bottom. The voices are louder now. I know the crew is just above me because food carts are starting to come down to the to be exchanged for fresh fresh ones. I know I'm not losing it, or am I? The first dessert cart is done now to set up the second one. I get the linens on the next liquor kit. Uh, the china service is set. All of a sudden, I hear a voice. I look up and see it. The caterer's walkie-talkie. By now, by now, I'm laughing, and I had been so worried, 
I finished setting up the cart. I went back upstairs uh, in the cockpit and told the guys my story. We all had a good laugh over it. Went back down and completed the service without another voice being heard. By now, you have, un- you have to understand a person can get a lot of mileage out of a story like this, and I did just that. With the best poker face I could muster, I did. One flight attendant, Bob Abbott, a good friend, got so mad at me that I thought he was going to explode before I got to the punchline. But wait, that's not the end of the story. Years later, I was working a flight sequence 500-501, Miami, San Francisco, in 1979. It was a cold and rainy night as we were leaving San Francisco, and of course I was working galley on the L-1011. Catering had already been on board and had finished loading. So I went to work to get the first items that would be needed for pre-departure sent up. A small, timid catering supervisor came aboard through the side galley door to check my supplies and deliver any extra meals I might need. He seemed very nervous and apprehensive even to be on board the plane. I asked if there was a problem, and as he started to explain while continuing to check the supplies, he was scared to death of the voices on Eastern L-1011s. As he continued, I realized it was my tale of voices he was telling. I started smiling, trying not to laugh, but I couldn't help myself. In a very straight face, I told him that this was a fine airplane, that nothing was going to happen. He looked at me and he asked why. With a very calm voice, I said, because that was me. He turned white as a ghost, ran off the catering truck, lowered it, and took off. I had to close the door and make sure it was secure. From what I understand, he quit his job that very night. Now that's the rest of the story. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in Cabin 2 just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York. Eastern's Transcon. This story was posted on the new... Eastern Airlines Retiree Association Facebook page, and it was sent in by Steve Giadoni, a mechanic in the New York area. Steve writes the following, The coldest night of my life was spent inside the number two engine of an L-1011. The number two engine required a boroscope inspection one night in the middle of winter. I was an RB211-22B scope qualified mechanic, so I was assigned the job. It's one thing scoping an engine in a climate-controlled hangar, but a totally different experience when you're inside the engine with the wind coming off Jamaica Bay, ripping down the S-duck of the O-1011, 
if you're familiar with the RB211 engine, you know the fan rotated freely in the breeze. The fan blades were somewhat loose when the engine wasn't running at high speed. So when the, wind, when the fans windmilled with the wind blowing across the S-duct, as we called it, they made a particularly aggravating clickety-clacking noise as the mid-span shrouds slapped together. I assessed the number two engine with a scissors lift and crawled inside the cold stream with the borescope equipment. The wind rushing down the S-duct had the fan blades spinning and clacking away. It felt like the wind speed was amplified by the fan blades, and even though I had my Eastern Issue winter parka on, I was chilled to the bone. You may be wondering how an engine can be borescoped if it's turning. The RB211 was a three-spool engine. The spinning fan was part of the low-pressure system. It took a relatively large amount of, of fan air movement to get the intermediate pressure and the high-pressure spools to rotate. On this particular night, rotation on the engine wasn't a factor because we were borescoping the combustion section, which had no rotating parts. If you're not familiar with an RB211 engine, you may be wondering how we were able to get inside the engine to borescope it. Good question. The RB211 had a large area that was strictly for the flow of fan air, the cold stream, as we called it. The gas genera generator portion of the engine or the compressors, combustion section, and turbines were known as the hot stream. The hot stream was centered within the cold stream by an A-frame support system. It was not a problem to crawl into the cold stream to borescope. My God, it was so cold, I still shiver when I think about it. Ellis B. Feaster's Radio Air Check and Classic TV Channel. Feel the seconds, feel each minute. As the day goes by, feel yourself in it. It's a good day to up and fly away. It's so easy to do. Eastern's got the right time and the right way. Here's some good news from Eastern Airlines. Now you can fly to Miami and Fort Lauderdale at Super Saver prices. Just $119 for round-trip night coach, $144 for round-trip day coach, and you get all the frills. Just plan to stay at least seven days, but not more than 30 days, and reserve and purchase your ticket a week in advance. For reservations, call your travel agent for Eastern Airlines. Eastern This next story is from the Eastern Airlines uh, Retired Pilots Association, REPA, and it's from the book entitled, The Best of Repartee. It's simply titled, Dick Bomar, Man of Distinction. 
Sicily is a picturesque island in the Mediterranean Sea, separated from the toe of the Italian boot by the Strait of Messina. The Apennine Mountains cross the island from east to west. Its highest point is smoldering Mount Etna, standing at 10,868 feet. Sicily has been invaded since the times of the early Carthaginians and ancient Greeks. On the night of July 11, 1943, on a second mission, Dick Bomar and his co-pilot were approaching the Sicilian coast in their C-47 with a plane load of airborne troops. Their mission was to pinpoint a drop zone where a fire was to be lit as a signal and reference point for the batteries of our warships out in the Mediterranean. Dick, who was doing the navigating, found his drop zone. The parachute troops were dropped and the fire lit. Shelling from the warships began and their C-47 was headed back out. The enemy mounted an intense counterattack and Dick's aircraft was caught in the crossfire. Flying at 500 feet with the windows open, they could hear the staccato sound of machine gun fire. They were hit by a hail of bullets and a shell exploded in the cockpit blowing a large hole in the ceiling. Dick Bomar felt a burning sensation in his arm and when he raised it, his shattered wrist and hand were hanging by a piece of flesh. This was not the worst of their trouble. Some of their control cables had been shot away and it appeared they would crash in the sea. In the 1920s, Bellbuckle was a sleepy little middle Tennessee town of 500, located 24 miles south of Murfreesboro. It was exactly what you would expect it to be with the center of social activity, the pot-bellied stove and the general store. Dick Bomar's mother wanted him to be a doctor, so he was enrolled in the famous Webb Preparatory School in his hometown of Bellbuckle. But the aviation bug had already bitten Dick. He poured over the Book of Knowledge Encyclopedia, reading about Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, the World War I ace. He had his first airplane ride at age seven. While attending, middle, while attending Tennessee State Teachers College, he worked at the Sky Harbor Airport in Murfreesboro, which served the metropolis of Nashville. Lieutenant R.O. Lindsay, a World War I ace, instructed him, and he was awarded pilot's license number 26899. He bought one half interest in his first airplane in 1932 for $300, which was a sizable sum in those days. He was immediately faced with the task of protecting his investment when the bolt holding the strut to the left landing gear fell out and the landing gear dangled free from the aircraft while on a checkout flight with Lieutenant Lindsay. Dick climbed out on the wing, wrapped his legs around the guide wires, and secured the landing gear with his belt. He then removed a piece of cowling wire and wrapped it around the rear strut, enabling Lieutenant Lindsay to make a safe landing. A new bow was installed and they went back up to complete the checkout. Dick obtained a job with Interstate Airlines and served as temporary relief at Chattanooga. He enjoyed his first cross-country flight with airmail pilot Leland Jameson, brother of Warren Jameson, who was rebuilding an airplane at Sky Harbor Airport. American Airlines took over Interstate Airlines in 1933, and shortly thereafter, the airmail contracts were canceled as the Army Air Corps took on the flying of the mail. When the contracts were reopened for bids, American Airways had to change its name to be eligible and became American Airlines. Dick remained at Sky Harbor Airport to handle the fueling facilities as American transferred its main operation to Fort Worth, Texas. It was at Sky Harbor Airport that Dick became friends with racing pilot Jimmy Doolittle. Eastern Airlines began flying through Sky Harbor in 1935, 
When refilling facilities were closed, Dick came to Atlanta and met Eastern's manager, Captain Larry Pabst, who hired him in 1938 and sent him to Spartanburg. While serving as agent, he flew for Palmetto Air Service to earn enough money for his instrument rating. He enlisted in the Army Air Corps Reserve in Atlanta and came back to Eastern Airlines as a pilot in 1940. He was called to active duty in 1942 and sent to Dayton, Ohio to form a troop carrier command. They moved to Indianapolis, Indiana and began their training. Dick Bomar was one of the very few qualified pilots at the outbreak of World War II and his mission was to train those new pilots with less than 200 hours to fly the C-47, pull gliders, and drop parachute troops in the 82nd Air Airborne Division. Dick performed his training duties well, for his, later his efforts would save his own life and those of his flight crew. He continued to train his group as they proceeded overseas to North Africa. He served as Flight Operations Officer in the 52nd Troop Carrier Squadron, and then was promoted to squadron commander of the 32nd Troop Carrier Squadron. After the briefing on July 11, 1943, Dick Bomar, acting as navigator and as co-pilot, performing the flight duties, took off from North Africa on their second mission to Sicily. When the hell of bullets hit them and the shell exploded in the cockpit, Dick Bomar looked at his shattered arm. He turned to his co-pilot co and said, Give me your knife. I'm going to cut this thing off. It won't be of any use to me when we crash in the sea. The co-pilot replied, No, you're not going to lose your arm, and we're not going to crash in the sea. You taught us how to fly this plane with the controls locked by using the engines, and we'll make it safely back and save your arm. The flight surgeon has already instructed us on how to deal with arm and leg injuries, so we know what we must do. Dick was lifted from the seat and given morphine and sulfur drugs. The landing was made with no flaps and limited control. By the slimmest margin, they were able to avoid hitting the jeep, which was out on the runway. Dick Bomar's long recovery began at the field hospital in North Africa. While being taken by train to Algiers, the bumpy ride broke the screws loose, which were holding the bones together in his arms. There was a long ship's crossing that ended at Staten Island General Hospital in New York. He was then taken to Memphis, and for 18 months, he underwent many operations. It was while he was in Memphis that Captain Eddie Reckenbacker came to see him. The captain lifted Dick's spirits by saying, Bomar, you'll have a job with Eastern Airlines, and if you can't fly, you'll be a dispatcher. Reckenbacker had that rare gift of being able to encourage people when they severed their most traumatic experiences, and it could be a great source of strength. To the credit of the medical corps, Dick Bomar's arm was saved, and he received a waiver which enabled him to return to Eastern Airlines as a pilot. Three months later, he was qualified as captain. Dick Bomar's life did not always involve so much distress. Prior to World War II, he encountered the pretty red-headed stewardess from Delta Airlines, Bertie Perkins, in the old Hangar Motel coffee shop in Atlanta. There had been a rainstorm. She came in and sat down beside him at the counter. Uncle Remus, who many of us remember as the old man who decorated a bale of cotton in front of the restaurant in the Atlanta terminal, approached her and said, Miss Bertie, I rolled the windows up on your car so it wouldn't get rained in on. Bertie thanked him and gave him a tip. Uncle Remus then turned to Dick and said he had also rolled up Dick's automobile windows. Dick thanked him. Bertie then said to Dick, Give him a tip too, you cheapskater. Dick Bomar says that Bertie has been costing him money ever since, for theirs was a happy romance that ended in a marriage lasting many years. Dick Bomar was thorough in every single thing he did.
After the long period of intensive flight training, he gave a squadron, which continued as they moved overseas. His pilots were ready and qualified for the task at hand, and they responded effectively to the catastrophe displayed a remarkable degree of courage. The medical corps was able to save Dick's arm, but he was later to lose part of his leg. You would never know it to see him. He continues to have the energy and enthusiasm of the young man he was back at Sky Harbor Airport. He is the chairman of our REPA Convention Committee and to a great degree responsible for the success of our fabulous REPA Conventions. It is he to whom we look for leadership as we attempt to accommodate our huge crowd. It is he and Bertie to whom we extend our profound gratitude for all the hard work they do for us. Dick and Bertie Bomar continue to be inspirations to all of us as we enjoy our association with them. Truly, Dick Bomar is our man of distinction. I'm going to uh, break the rules of this show because we do have a caller that I see. We have a few minutes left, and so I want to talk with uh, Captain Jim Holder, retired Eastern Airlines pilot and also the editor of the Repartee magazine that I handed over to him, and he did a magnificent job for 15 years writing that magazine. Uh, not writing it, but being the editor of that uh, magazine, and also, yes, writing stories in the magazine. Hello, Jim. Are you with me? I certainly am, and I've been enjoying hearing what y'all are doing tonight. Well, good. I'm glad you're with us, and I have a few minutes, and if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of chat with you about uh, what you've heard these past two shows I think you've listened to, and knowing a lot of the uh, people that we have uh, told the stories about, uh, like Dick Bomar, I believe you remember Dick. Oh, man, I certainly did, and I flew with him, and he was a great pilot and a great captain and a wonderful guy. I tell you, I love to fly with Dick Bomar. Yes, he was uh, a real he gentleman. Was chief, he was a chief pilot for a while, you know, here. That yeah. Night. He did a great job, great job. Now, he was chief pilot before Perry Hudson or after Perry? I think before. he was, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I'm not that I'm not that old. I think <laughs> that, he you was, know, that before. was before. Yeah, yeah, I think he might have been before. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, he was a great, you know, great, great chief yeah. pilot and a great guy to fly with. Just a wonderful man. And, and uh, you know, Jerry Hudson was too. Oh yeah, and uh, I'd sure like to do a story uh, on the memories of a great airline uh, about Perry. He's one of my very, very favorite ones, and I've known very uh, a few mm-hmm. stories that. Uh, I was in with Perry and my late partner, uh, John Corni, who was also an Eastern pilot. But but uh, we do have a lot of stories to tell, and uh, we wrote them over the years in that great magazine uh, uh, for the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, uh, Repartee. And um, uh, so we're going to be taking a lot of a lot of those stories out and and uh, and talking about them or, or reading them and telling our listeners. But you too have stories that you have. We've already done two of your stories in the last couple of episodes, and uh, mm-hmm. I think you have another one in mind that you want to uh, ship off to us and have one of us to read it. And, 
And uh, well, uh, can you tell us a little bit yeah, about that? Uh, Captain Walt J. Selton. Did you know Walt? Uh, he came up from Miami. He was down there. He was extremely senior, and he came into Atlanta after he retired and became a very close friend of mine. And he was very senior, and he was uh, had a career that uh, I've written an article about it, and uh, tell you, uh, Walt Shelton. Yeah. Uh, fine fella, fine fella. He died, uh, I think he was 80, 88 or something like that when he passed away. But he lived very close to me out here, and we got to know each other. And he went to reaper lunches with me and QBs, and you, know, you couldn't ask for a better guy. I, I just wish well, I could have flown with him. Yeah, me too. I never did fly with him. I had heard a lot about uh, Walt, but uh, never did uh, meet him personally or fly with him. But um, mm-hmm. there was a uh, quite an interesting part of that story as I read it that you sent, and uh, mm-hmm. we're not going to we're not going to tell our listeners because it it's it's kind of a lot of uh, humor to it, even though it's yeah. a a, a, a I think you wrote, uh, you were the person in charge of the the, the speech, the eulogy or whatever. Uh, yeah, I was, and that funeral. was quite a shock to me, you know. I'd known him real well, and we really got to be good friends. Uh, we attended uh, many events together, and his wife, uh, Dolores, came very close to my wife, Carrie. Yeah. And uh, and I knew he was sick, and he was having a lot of trouble, and I went to see him in the hospital here in Conyers. And uh, and uh, she called me up, uh, and I went and told me that he was not expected to make it through the night. And I was on a trip with ATA, and I came and uh, went straight to the hospital when I got home. And, Can you come uh, check? He was – pardon? <laughs> yeah, I was – excuse me. I was just kind of coughing here. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. And uh, and he um, died, and and uh, yeah, the next tell, day, and don't tell okay, the interesting part to. of that story because we want we want the people be to come quiet. back to, be to listen to that. <laughs> it's yeah. not it's not too long, but it's not short. My story, it's not short. Okay, but, uh, well, I'd love to tell it. I'd love to tell it. Okay, very good. Well, we'll thing. we'll have it on the show next week, and uh, right now, okay, good. Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go ahead and sign off and. Uh, this is a, a sign-off message that we have at the end of the of the show, and we have as the introduction. I've written another introduction that I'll use on the next show, which I think is even better than what I had for the first show. So, at any rate, uh, see what you think of this. And Jim will have the story on uh, next week, next Saturday, same time at eight o'clock. So, I'm going to punch the sign-off button here. And you might want to listen to it. For Harry Lindquist and myself, I'd like to thank you for tuning us in today. We hope you'll come back and listen to more stories and memories of the world's greatest airline. Stories of its people and planes as told by the Eastern family. If you missed the 8 p.m. schedule radio show, don't worry, as it will be in the archive on the Internet About 15 minutes after broadcast, you can go to www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, the same way that you tuned us in to listen to tonight's
Episode 1. The episodes are listed by numbers with the highest number, the latest to be broadcast. If you have a story about Eastern Airlines that you'd like to share with others, why not send it to us? Our email is eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's E-N-E-A-L, Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. We're recorded and give you the credit on the air. Now, until next week, we'll sign off with this familiar theme music of our great airline, Eastern. Good night to the Eastern family. See you next week. See you, Jim. See you. Good night.